Hello and welcome to another episode of the Tech Weekly podcast. I'm Lily Russell-Jones, City AM's crypto reporter. And I'm Charlie Conchie, City AM's investment reporter. Today we're joined by the UK's former health secretary, Matt Hancock, who has emerged as a champion for the UK's crypto industry in recent months. Thanks for joining us, Matt. It's great to be here. You've been increasingly vocal about your support for crypto. Can you tell us what's behind your interest in cryptocurrencies? Well, yes, I, I've t- long taken an interest in fintech. And before I was in politics, uh, I was at the Bank of England. Uh, and before that, I was in my family uh, tech business. So it's kind of my uh, my background. And, uh, you know, having been health secretary for uh, for three years and then coming out of that, I looked around to see you know what had what had been going on whilst uh, whilst I've been concentrating on uh, other matters, and I I was just really surprised at the lack of a positive voice for new innovations, especially in finance and and you know crypto is the sort of the edge the 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 point on the spear in that if you like, but actually it's about you know making the case that the UK succeeds in the world and becomes prosperous if we're embracing of new technologies, uh, innovations, especially in finance, throughout decades or even centuries. You know, the UK, London in particular, but that, that uh, the, the success of London benefits everywhere else in the UK as well. Um, we have succeeded when we've embraced modern technology. Cryptocurrency is the latest controversial new technology. They're always controversial at first until they become ubiquitous. Uh, And we've got to make the argument and put the policy in place that welcomes crypto. So I I went into a debate in the House of Commons and I was amazed to find that, you know, I was one of the few voices, uh, you know, give him his credit, other than the minister, um, making the case for the UK being the home of crypto. And so, uh, you know, my, my... my mission in this, if you like, is to is to make the UK love crypto. If we can love crypto, we can embrace it. We can get a good, strong regulatory system, uh, it's a liberal regulatory system, but nevertheless having the rules there that are appropriate to the to the modern use of technology. And um, you know, digital through crypto is disrupting finance in the same way as you know it disrupted. Uh, retail through the use of internet shopping or the way that social media disrupted traditional media. And we're now seeing that play through in finance. And we have to embrace this because otherwise we'll just get left behind. You've spoken about the importance of embracing crypto and getting the UK to love crypto, but you don't hold crypto yourself. No, and I've chosen not to simply for the, you know, the narrow reason that I don't want it either to be or to look like I'm talking my own book. You know, when a, when a journalist who isn't an expert in crypto, you know, asks a gotcha question and they do, which is, oh, do you own any NFTs? And the answer is no. In fact, I, you know, I was, I was offered an NFT, very low value NFT as a thank you for doing a speech. I said, no, I, I, I don't want to do that. I, um, uh, I, I just want, because I care so much about the agenda, ironically, um, it is, it is easier to speak more, uh, cleanly, if you like, about mm-hmm. it. Now, there's another argument, which is, you know, you should have people talking about these things who who are invested, who are who who know it through as being investors. And I'm not against that at all. If if another, you know, MP wanted to stand up and support crypto and say, I've been investing for ten years, and da, 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 um, and there are some, uh, then I'm all for that. I'm not criticizing that. Mm-hmm. It's just 
it's just easier actually to speak in favor of uh, crypto if I don't own any. So can you tell us who some of those crypto investing in? No, I'm not going to tell you about the personal financial <laughs> arrangements of uh, MPs. Anyway, if it's do, if it if it's if it needs to be declared, I'm sure it will be declared. That's not the point. The point is that you um, that's exactly the sort of gotcha question I'm avoiding by not owning okay. any crypto. No, I'm just interested. No, we we've dived into a point about political debate. The point is in that debate we need people who are pro innovation, pro the future. Um, and of course, a regulatory regime to ensure that crypto mm-hmm. works for society. And for that, if, you, if, if, if it's too heavy handed, it'll just happen elsewhere. It's not like we can stop this thing or should, in my view. Um, uh, but so it needs to be it needs to protect, um, protect people, uh, have an eye to the financial stability issues, etc. Um, but also be welcoming. And, and that's what, you know, talking to most people in crypto, that's what people want. Speaking of the UK's regulatory arrangements, the Chancellor last month announced plans to transform Britain into a global hub for digital assets, for example, by integrating stablecoins into the UK's payment system and creating tax incentives for the crypto industry to develop in the UK. Um, Can you give us any idea of what could be coming down the track? Well, I think, firstly, I think this was a really positive statement by by Rishi Sunak. You know, he has grasped the nettle. Um, and the paper that he put out did exactly what we needed, which is to say uh, the UK wants to be a home to crypto. We It needs to be uh, regulated to ensure that it's done in a safe way, but that regulation can't be overburdensome. Um, obviously, what matters next is the next level of detail. Um, there, are, there, are, there, are, there are regulatory pieces, there are tax pieces. For instance, how you treat a crypto transaction is critical. Um, because if you treat it like a, you know, like a like a transaction in physical property, then you'll never be able to have an effective uh, market. Uh, and so HMRC need to come to the table and play their part. And I think so far they've been making decisions. You know, just looking at it through a uh, a, um, a, a narrow lens, if you like, of um, well, you know, this is a new thing. How do we treat it? As opposed to asking the question, how do we ensure that the way that we tax things is consistent with growing this industry uh, here in the UK, the policy question, if you like, um, that needs to change. And the paper signaled, the Treasury paper signaled that will change. Um, and we need to ensure that the um, uh, that that customers get, that consumers get the right level of information. Now, I think very strongly that people should be trusted so long as you get decent information. So that means disclosure rules, rules around advertising, uh, but still allow caveat emptor. You know, people should be able to invest their own money if they want to. You, you've spoken a bit there about the kind of gaps that are in the strategy. Is there a sort of gap in the skill sets, do you feel, as well at all? Do we have the right people in place to be making these decisions? Well, we absolutely need to have uh, people who understand crypto in the policy space. Um, you know, I've talked about attitudes here in Parliament. Um, we've got to make sure that there are people who understand crypto in uh, the regulators, in the Bank of England, in the FCA, in the Treasury have demonstrated they really get this now. That's great. Uh, there have been some new appointments at the FCA, which I welcome. Uh, the Bank of England has been, I think, very smart in what they've said, which is essentially start from the principle that uh, that, that there should be a broad equivalence in terms of function of a of a, um, of a of a new technology of a crypto uh, technology, um, and but it, it, this is hard because um, there's a shortage of people who have uh, the necessary skills. 
Um, and so it is, it, you know, it's not, it's not straightforward to get the right people in the right places, but it's critical that the FCA in particular uh, have people who, who understand crypto, uh, regulating crypto, because otherwise you have all sorts of regulatory mistakes. Are you winning around some of your colleagues in Parliament to crypto, do you feel? Well, I definitely think that the discussion's improved in the last six months. Um, and I don't know how much of that is down to me, uh, but the combination of the government moving, but also some things that have happened externally. So, you know, um, one of the best advocates for the use of crypto now uh, is Vladimir Zelensky. When he went out and said crypto is incredibly helpful for financing the defense of Ukraine, that helps enormously um, because he, you know, we need to make and win the argument that if you want sanctions in place, having a um, a currency that's on the blockchain that can be interrogated uh, and is designed in such a way that it is essential, has essentially has transparency built into it, is actually better for implementing sanctions if done properly than fiat currency. Um, We've got to win these arguments. And so people like, you know, when Zelensky comes and says crypto is a force for good in the world, you know, that is as powerful as anybody. But at the same time, Ukraine's deputy prime minister called on crypto exchanges to stop allowing Russian and Belarusian clients to use platforms and exchanges to trade crypto because of concerns about sanctions evasion. Yes. So there's a tension there between what the technology can do and how it needs to be regulated. A hundred percent. But the people to make the decision about who should be sanctioned have to be countries, mm. not companies. And here I've got a lot of sympathy with what uh, CZ said at Binance when he was asked about this. Uh, he was, you know, why don't you as a, the major exchange or one of the major exchanges, why don't you stop all Russians and Belarusians? Well, that's a bit like saying to somebody, to a bank, you know, please freeze the assets of every single Russian and Belarusian. Um, actually, Ironically, at the same time, we're trying to put in place a regulatory structure that says you should, through the exchange, be able to get access to your assets. But as soon as somebody is sanctioned by a uh, by a, by the by the West, basically by a state um, that is legitimately elected, um, then that sanction should be put in place, and that's what they're doing. And through a regulated exchange, that is, you can put those sanctions in place immediately. Um, in uh, through a blockchain, blockchain technology based technology, um, actually more quickly than you can uh, through fiat. So let's make sure that the right roles and responsibilities are here. Right? It is for um, it is for legitimate governments to decide who should be sanctioned. It's then for the exchange to implement uh, those uh, sanctions. It isn't for a company to decide who should be sanctioned. And I think that is a, a, a you know that's where we've got to. And it's uh, and 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 and, but it takes it takes one level of explanation. Yeah, so I would say that the crypto industry works slightly differently to the extent that you can have decentralized exchanges where you might not know who's accessing these so, products. So, in the same way that in fiat, you can have lorry loads of cash driving mm -hmm. from one place to another, and you can have um, uh, uh, banks in um, oblique jurisdictions. So, of course, there are um, there are there are challenges around the edges. But if you look at the scale of those transactions, they are uh, relatively small in the grand scheme of things. It doesn't take away from the fact they also have to be dealt with, but you get problems like that in fiat and in uh, crypto. Um, you know, Just because there are bad actors doesn't mean that every mechanism bad actors use is bad, but you have to 
you 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 know you have to target them as as well as you can using those technologies. An example is in the in the US, the FBI have successfully traced criminal payments through exchanges and then have um, arrested people on the back of those. That's the system working well using the modern technology. Just saying this technology is used by bad people, you know, therefore we should ban it. That's that's uh, totally illogical. I mean, you know, bad people use mobile phones. It doesn't mean that we ban mobile phones. It means that we try to use, you know, we try to, <laughs> we try to um, bring law enforcement using modern technology. Coming back to stablecoins, a recent House of Laws report dubbed stablecoins a solution in search of a problem. So suggesting that the technology doesn't really have a use case. So I think it's safe to say that a lot of your colleagues aren't yet sold on the potential of crypto. Well, that was specific. I've read that report and um, it's specifically about a retail CBDC. So, Mm. you know, the the question of whether you want everyone to have essentially have an account with the Bank of England, you know, I think that is a uh, problem that uh, that is a, that is a, it's an idea that really um, isn't solving a big problem in the UK. You know, I worked at the Bank of England. I used to have an account with the Bank of England and the Bank of England long ago stopped having bank accounts uh, for retail customers, including its own employees, um, because it was it, it, it was um, it was ridiculous. Um, the, the Bank of England is a central bank, not a retail bank. Um, so um, but the but the use case for. Um, for stable coins, for private stable coins, um, even potentially for a wholesale CBDC is much more um, advanced. Now, in the UK domestically, of course, we have a superb payment system that is super fast and that is uh, very, very cheap and free in almost all use cases. And in a way, we already have a digital currency, right? I came on here on the tube this morning. I put my uh, phone next to the tube reader and it charged me £2.60 or whatever it is to go on the tube. And um, uh, and so there isn't a domestic um, use case for a radical change in the payment system because we've got a very good payments infrastructure. But internationally, payments are really expensive. And within some countries, including some advanced countries like the United States, between different countries within the European Union, um, there are big frictions and costs. Um, And so there are, uh, you know, there are use cases, there's strong use cases for stablecoins essentially as making the payment system more efficient. And then once you load on the ability to have smart contracts and build in some of the uh, contractual agreements into the way that the that the payment system operates. So mm-hmm. to say, if these conditions exist, then make this payment to build that into the um, into the contract. So it's automatic rather than has to be triggered by uh, either party. Um, you know, there are all sorts of use cases, many of which we haven't yet imagined. So we've got to be quite we've got to be mm-hmm. specific about what what you know is and isn't being criticised. Okay, and does the Chancellor Rishi Sunak share your enthusiasm for crypto beyond stablecoins? He, yes, I think so. Yeah, um, he okay. shares an enthusiasm. We share an enthusiasm for being the home of uh, of innovation and modern technology and its application in uh, not just in finance but actually across the board. Um, and uh, and I, I think the Treasury paper demonstrated that. So turning to um, retail traders and the public's involvement with crypto, because you've spoken quite a lot about the right to invest and giving investors in the UK the ability to access crypto regardless of their net worth or 
I think it's incredibly patronizing to say that unless you're rich, you can't invest in stuff. Um, And it's ultimately, it is, it it creates financial exclusion. If you say you have to pass an exam or, or be worth a certain, more than a certain amount before you can invest in certain asset classes. And I think that the, frankly, I think over a couple of decades, um, well-meaning, patronizing regulation has stopped retail investors from being able to invest their own money right across the board. And crypto is one of the areas that currently uh, you can invest in. And we mustn't then bring in this a sort of what I think is a terribly negative attitude about human uh, um, uh, capability that says that you've got to be loaded to invest in crypto. I mean, that's it's outrageous. It causes financial exclusion. It excludes people from being able to access good returns, uh, not just in crypto, but actually, but in, in venture capital, all sorts of different areas, because of these um, uh, these these patronizing rules. And what matters is good information. I'm up for strong rules for consumer protection around information um, and, um, and, and obviously good financial education because you know, we should trust the people. We're talking in the midst of a sort of cost of living crisis. And mm. Nikhil Ratti last week, uh, chief of the FCA, was saying that you know, crypto investors do need to be prepared to lose all their money when they do invest in sure. crypto. Sure, those warnings, I think is- I really welcome that sort of warning. So is it responsible to be touting crypto as a kind of financial inclusion, you know, measure? Yes, in the midst yes. Of this and it's terribly patronizing to think the opposite. Um, it, it's right to say you may lose everything, uh, but you may not, right? If I buy a share in, the, uh, in a company on the, on the uh, stock market, I might lose everything, right? Companies go bust all the time. And we don't stop people from doing that. But what we've ended up doing is saying you can only buy shares in listed companies, which are increasingly the most boring, utility-based, highly regulated, low-return businesses. And all the high-return businesses have gone private. And so you can't access those sorts of returns. And to say the same about crypto would be outrageous. You know, people are smart. Yes, you have to protect people from poor information and from... Uh, and from biased information, so disclosure about uh, conflicts of interest, really, really important. Um, but but to uh, to say that, you know, it, it, the, t- the tone of this debate really grates with me. To say, uh, isn't it, um, uh, what's the word that you used in the question? Isn't it, uh, isn't it irresponsible to allow people to invest their own money? No, it's not irresponsible. It's grown up and we're a grown up country. Okay, well, there seems to be a bit of a split between lawmakers and the regulators here. Sure, because because it's easier as a regulator to stop good things happening just in case they go wrong. And, you know, I've heard people say, oh, but what about this incident that happened or that incident? Or they said it was this company was probably okay and then it went bust. Well, that happens all the time, right? It's called a market economy. And the regulator needs the support and the air cover to allow people to take risks. Sometimes risks go wrong. So long as you are clear about the risks in advance, um, and both as regulators and, and, and so as the advertising rules and the other information-based rules, you should then let people get on with it. So I, I welcome this statement um, from the FCA for two reasons. Firstly, because it genuinely says to people, you know, don't invest more than you can afford to lose. And I'd reiterate that. But it secondly, I hope, will give the FCA the ability then not to um, stop 
essentially everybody, unless you're rich, from investing in crypto. Um, because the FCA should rightly say, we have warned people that you might lose everything, um, and but we have allowed you to make those investments. And let's just step back one more, right? Imagine if you came to this, you know, as a, as a fresh policy question. And he said, I know, I know, I know, I know. What we're going to do is we're going to say there's one rule for people who've got 10 million quid in the bank and there's a different rule for everybody else. It's outrageous. Of course you shouldn't say that. But I think there's such a wide range of misinformation out there about crypto and there have been so many scams that surely a balance has to be struck between making sure that you have solid regulation around crypto and crypto itself as an asset before you say anyone's free to invest as much no, as they want. No, we're a free country. I think that's terrible. Sure, there's there's misinformation. Let's clean that up. There's also, there's also by the way, a load of scams uh, that are in place because there isn't a high, a, a decent regulatory structure um, and a lot of things, uh, you know, a, a lot of the scams are basically, you know, come and put your money with me. They're, they're not done by crypto people at all. They're just people pretending to be uh, crypto yeah. investment opportunities. That's not the fault of the of, 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 of people who work in crypto. Um, it, it, that's that's bad behavior. It's potentially criminal behavior, and it should be uh, stopped. But it isn't a reason to stop the world and to say we're not going to have. Um, this uh, industry here. And it's certainly not a reason to say to your average uh, retail investor, I'm terribly sorry, because there's a scam going on uh, somewhere else, uh, we're going to we're going to exclude you from this, uh, from the the, uh, from this freedom to invest. Can we talk about the optics of your involvement with crypto? Because I published an article based on some of your comments um, and people reacted to it negatively online. And I would say that often the critics are louder than the sort of- Oh yeah, you never read the comments. Know, I mean, the comments are, yeah. I'm but, sure some of the anti-vaxxers were having a go, you know. Well, it was more to do with people perceiving crypto to be untrustworthy. So can I ask you what motivates you to defend it? Oh, because frankly, because nobody else was. Um, there's a, um, because it matters, right? This technology is going to change finance in a radical way. We've already seen whole sectors disrupted. This is coming to finance. If, if we as a country are not ahead of this curve and not ready for it, then we will A, miss out on an opportunity, but B, we have the risk of losing an industry that is an incredibly, uh, productive part of our economy, and it you know it isn't a particularly you know sticking up for finance has never been a particularly fashionable thing to do, um, but it's uh, but it's really important to 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 the UK, and it has been through the you know through through decades. If we, if we sort of zoom out even further than that, I suppose, and look yeah. at this as a topic, and as Lily mentioned, there are still some fairly vocal critics around. How much is this? Do you feel? A kind of rehabilitation exercise, choosing a, a topic that wasn't associated with you at all. Well, it, well, that's not quite right, is it? Because I've been involved in in fintech for years before I became health secretary. Um, you know, I was the digital secretary before that, and um, so the, and you know, I, I, it's an area that I've got a lot of um, background in and expertise in. For instance, having worked at the bank, so you know, I, I feel like because I'm able to speak up. Uh, because I know some of the um, technical um, details, I wouldn't pretend to be a an expert. I'm not, you know, actively working in this space, obviously, uh, but I have enough of a background to be able to uh, 
um, to be able to talk about it. And you can choose which topics you want to go into once you're on, when you're on the backbenches. And I'm, you know, I've got a I've got a voice, and I don't mind the the criticism from some. You can't make any difference if you if you're not prepared to have some criticism, and some of it's reasonable. And I'm I, I enjoy engaging in that debate, and some of it's unreasonable. And you know, hey ho. Well, getting on to the slightly more personal side of things, um, now that you've left the cabinet, you're publishing a diary from your time as health secretary. Um, are you hoping to set the record straight about certain decision-making during your time? Well, I just feel like I've got a duty to tell the story as I uh, experienced it, as I lived it. Um, it's about, um, so I'm, you know, my, my aim is to tell the story, the, tell the story straight from my point of view. And there's, yeah, this, it was such an extraordinary period in, in, um, in the life of the country, um, that I, I, I want to be able to do that. There's still quite a lot of controversy around decision-making that was made at the start of the pandemic. Sure. For example, the High Court this week declared that discharging patients from hospitals to care homes without tests at the start of the pandemic was unlawful. Will you be explaining how that kind of decision-making was allowed? It, it, my, my goal is just to, to tell the story straight from, from my seat as health secretary at the time. Um, the you know so in in that instance actually the court judgment if you read the whole thing makes it it clear uh, and I've talked about this before um, it uh, you know I've talked I answered questions at the select committee a year ago about this you know we I was worried about asymptomatic transmission and we'd heard uh, stories about asymptomatic transmission but but the official position of the advice that came to me did not include this and the court found that to be um uh, to be wrong and um so what matters to me in this space is that we learn right and um, we've got to learn we are going to have another pandemic you know i don't like that fact but it's mm. true and one of the things that i found as health secretary was that there wasn't like a manual on the shelf you know there, there hadn't been a pandemic for a century um yes there'd been exercises but there wasn't the lived experience of going through it. So you mentioned there that you didn't sort of take asymptomatic transmission into account because of the advice that you received. On the 9th of March, so about a month before the policy to discharge people into care homes without tests was changed, Lord Bethel, who was the sure. health minister of the House of Lords, said large numbers of people are infected and infectious, but completely asymptomatic and never go near a test kit. So yeah. was the advice you were receiving different from the advice that he received? Well, so I, um, the, the, the honest truth here, which I've repeated endlessly, um, is that there were, um, there were f suspicions about asymptomatic transmission. You know, I first raised it back in January and I, in fact, I called the, the head of the WHO about it uh, because there were reports of it coming out of asymptomatic transmission in China. And I was told by him that that was a, uh, an error in translation. So I'd been raising this issue. Other ministers had too. Um, we'd been answering questions about it in public, about the uncertainty around it. The court specifically found that the advice on which the care home policy guidance was made did not include the definitive um, assessment of this. And that's, that was the error that the court uh, found and hence it found its judgment. And I've made that uh, clear. You know, it's one of the things we've been, you know, the Prime Minister and I have both said 
um, uh, repeatedly is that, you know, we wish that we had known more about this at the time. Fighting the pandemic was all about making the best judgments you can in a world of, uh, of limited information. And that's, um, you know, that was the challenge at the time. And do you think, looking back now, that that was a mistake? Oh, there were, there were, of course, not knowing enough about asymptomatic transmission with hindsight. The question is, what do you do at the time? And the, you know, when you don't have all this information, you know, I, um, it, as you know, if you if you read the court judgment, it literally says that I was not advised on this point. Now, but that isn't to say that we didn't have worries about it. I was worried about it, and I'd raised those worries over the weeks and indeed months beforehand because I knew what an important question this was. But you know, the countervailing global scientific consensus. Uh, was that no coronavirus before had been passed on asymptomatically, and so it couldn't be. Um, and uh, that turned out to be wrong. So, uh, you know, the the most important thing, having been through it and me having um, been in the hot seat, is just to make sure we learn the lessons and learn the right lessons. Um, but, you know, you can, I, I know people, have, you know, they say, well, Chris Whitty said this to the select committee, or they say, um, but James Bethel said this to the House of Lords. Um, but but the honest truth is, of course, we were worried about this and we were asking mm. questions about it. The court finding was specifically that there wasn't an, an analysis of this in the uh, advice that was put to me about that guidance. And, um, uh, and, and you know, that's what it found. And I suppose coming back to the point on your sort of previous role as health secretary, yeah. is there a contradiction, do you think, in the fact that, you, you know, you were found to have broken the rules and you did resign from your post and the prime minister's decision not to have resigned from his role. Is there a contradiction? Well, there's a, look, when you're choosing, deciding who's who should be prime minister, there are many, many considerations. And uh, especially given his leadership in the efforts of the world to, uh, to, to deal with Vladimir Putin and to ensure that unprovoked aggression uh, cannot succeed um, there's there's lots of other considerations, and um, you know, so I think we should accept Boris's apology and move on. Looking big picture as well, again, you put your hat in the ring during the last leadership race in 2019. Um, would you consider running for prime minister again, and or a sort of role not in the cabinet? Now. Are you eyeing up? Not not now. I'm not. I, I'm not in a rush. Uh, I'm not in a rush. I've you know I've enjoyed being on the backbenches far more than I expected. Uh, I didn't expect to enjoy it at all. And um, choosing your own subject matter, spending more time in Suffolk, supporting my um, constituents, um, you know, the horse racing industry is an absolutely brilliant industry and fascinating to essentially, you know, uh, represent them in Parliament. Uh, getting on with my dyslexia campaign and changing the rules, uh, changing the way that the uh, education system supports people with dyslexia. Uh, crypto, if I'd still been health secretary, I wouldn't have been able to um, to 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 put my voice into this debate, um, you know, I, I'm I'm not sure if I'd been a minister, I still would have been able to have um, to welcome uh, a Ukrainian family into my home. Some ministers have, and I give them enormous credit for doing it. But there's so many pressures on a minister. I'm not sure I would have had the bandwidth to do that. Um, but it's been hugely um, humbling, actually, uh, to to um, 
to support and to get to know a, a, a family who have, um, who have, I mean, they're just like us, but they've escaped a war zone and um, had some terrible experiences. And it's a real, uh, it, it, it's it's a real pleasure to be able to support them. So, you know, you I've been able to do things I wouldn't otherwise have been able to do. And if you were to make a return to the cabinet. Well, I'm not in a rush is to do so, a, so therefore well, I'm not going to answer whatever's is, going next. <laughs> is there a role that you would particularly be interested in taking? I'm definitely not making a job application on your podcast, but I'm very grateful for the opportunity to, uh, <laughs> the invitation to do so. Okay, well, I think that's all we have time for. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me.